Morning. Morning. Thank you all for coming back. Appreciate that. Uh, I wanted to uh, say a few words about uh, the Theopolis Institute that I run in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, we started in 2013. Uh, Theopolis is a community of scholars, uh, theologians, pastors, and students, uh, and we're devoted to articulating and defending and uh, disseminating a particular vision of church life, especially of church reformation. Uh, we uh, produce resources for st uh, students of the Bible, for students of liturgy, for pastors and leaders in the church who want to help reform the church. Uh, we do courses. We teach um, pastors and seminarians, lay people in our courses. And we also are trying to provide facilitate networks of uh, uh, pastors who, are, who, who share certain, a certain vision for uh, the church, but don't know that, uh, the other, that other people exist who share, their, who share their vision for the church. So we're facilita facilitating networks uh, by, uh, through our courses and through our different ministries. Um, the tagline of Theopolis is Bible, Liturgy, and Culture, and that summarizes the set of interests that we have. It's a pretty broad set of interests. It's everything and then some. Um, in terms of biblical uh, interests, we want to teach and train people to read the Bible and teach the Bible with more depth and to recognize the beauties and the power of Scripture. If I could make a local application, what we're trying to do is teach people uh, teach pastors and future pastors to teach the Bible like your pastor does, like Dwayne does, uh, to uh, grasp something of the depth and the beauty of the Bible and to be able to communicate that to congregations. Um, so we think a, a healthy church, a church that can be a light and can be a transformative influence in the world, has to be a biblically grounded church. And too much of uh, Protestant Bible teaching, too much of Christian Bible teaching these days is superficial. We want to deepen uh, people's understanding, especially leaders in the church, want to deepen their understanding of Scripture. Uh, we also emphasize liturgical life, the worship of the church. Uh, worship, in order to be transforming for the people who attend it and transforming for the world, has to be biblically grounded. And so it's not just that we're interested in the Bible and we're also interested in liturgy, but we're interested in how the Bible shapes our liturgy and how the Bible comes into its own in applying to people's lives in the liturgy. The liturgy is the place where the Bible is uh, communicated to the people of God, where we come to not just to hear and understand a, an ancient text, but the liturgy is the place where we, be, where we learn to and actually do inhabit the world of the Bible. Uh, the Bible, for example, is full of meal events, lots of feasting in the Bible. And worship is the place where we're incorporated into that history of feasting because in worship, we come to the Lord's table and we feast uh, on Christ by the Spirit. So uh, we, we're not just interested in Bible and liturgy as two discrete interests, but we want to see, uh, explore how the Bible shapes our liturgy, how the, li the liturgy is a place of our encounter with the Bible. And we also have an interest in transforming culture. We believe that it's only churches that are biblically grounded, churches that have vibrant, lively worship centered on the Lord's table, with psalm singing at the center of their at the worship. Those kinds of churches are the churches that can actually have an impact 
on the world around us. So the, a biblical and liturgical church is a church that's prepared for a transforming mission in the surrounding culture. Um, if you want to, another way to think about what we're up to, a lot of Christians, of course, are interested in transforming culture. They recognize that there's something wrong with the world around us. And a lot of Christians, in order to address that, will um, encourage political activism. Political activism is a good. shouldn't discourage that. But if you jump to trying to address cultural issues directly like that without paying attention to how the church functions as a transforming influence in a culture uh, through its distinctive ministries of word and worship, if we, if we leap over the church, then we're missing the central part of uh, what the, uh, of, of the God's program for transforming the world. Uh, we like to use a biblical image to describe this. Uh, in the Bible, uh, we have, uh, you can, you can tra trace the history of water in the Bible and you can see something about the church's mission. Uh, Eden, uh, God planted a garden in Eden. There was a river that flowed out of Eden through the garden and went out to the four corners of the earth and took the life and the fruitfulness of the garden out into the world to make the world into a garden. And uh, as you trace through the Bible, you find that the water source repeatedly throughout the Bible, the water source is the sanctuary, the place where people gather to worship God. That's where living water comes. Uh, there's water in the tabernacle. There's a great sea of water in the temple. Ezekiel has a vision of a temple uh, where the water is flowing out from the temple out into the land and out to the Dead Sea, and as it goes, it refreshes and transforms a, uh, a, a dead world. But it starts with the sanctuary. It starts with what people do in worship. It starts with an encounter with Jesus Christ by His Spirit in the Word and at the Lord's table. And so we, we want to emphasize those things and explore how those things are culturally transformative. More specifically, we do this through, uh, as I mentioned last evening, we, have, uh, we produce weekly videos uh, that you can access through our uh, website or the newsletter. Uh, we uh, put out a couple of podcast episodes every week uh, that, again, you can access through the newsletter. Sign-up sheets. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet out there. There's another one somewhere, I guess. Um, there's podcast episodes. We have a website that has written material on it. Uh, we also do occasional, uh, several times a year, we have intensive courses in Birmingham. Students come to Birmingham for a week and spend a week uh, worshiping together, studying together, um, uh, learning about scripture or liturgy or culture, Oh, we have uh, just uh, recently had a course. Um, uh, we have a course coming up on the theology of ritual uh, taught by a professor at the King's College in New York. Uh, we had a course on the Ten Commandments recently. Uh, we had a course on the theology of, of sexuality last year uh, taught by one of our fellows, Alistair Roberts. So we address biblical topics, liturgical topics, and cultural topics in those courses. And also those are events where pastors and seminary students and other people who have these shared interests can meet each other, fellowship together, eat meals together, worship together. It's a kind of retreat for um, pastors and uh, for uh, church leaders. Uh, so that's one of the, one of the main projects, that main programs we're involved in. And we're beginning to produce a series of books called the Theopolis Fundamentals that's going to lay out uh, kind of the basic vision of Theopolis and also try to detail it in various areas, areas of Bible liturgy and culture. So if, um, if you want to know more about Theopolis, what we're up to, check out our website, theopolisinstitute.com. Sign up for the newsletter, and you can, you'll get a weekly newsletter that'll 
collect together all the different things we've produced over the weekend. You can keep up with what we're doing. And of course, uh, we'd love to see anyone who's interested in Birmingham sometime for a course. Anybody's, uh, you don't have to be a pastor or a seminary student to attend one of our courses, and anybody's welcome. Um, I want to uh, continue my discussion of gratitude by talking about how Jesus liberates us from the dilemmas of ancient gratitude. Uh, but before we do that today, let me pray. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is your gift to us, that in him we have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We thank you that you have sent the Spirit of Jesus to be with us, and that by the Spirit uh, we not only receive the gift of the Spirit, but we are equipped with gifts that we can share with one another, and so together build up the body of Christ. And we pray that you would teach us what it means to be a thankful people as we study these things together today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, last night we looked particularly at the uh, play Coriolanus, and we were looking at the dilemmas of gratitude as they're laid out in Coriolanus. Uh, this is a Shakespearean play about a Roman set of events in ancient Rome. Uh, and I think uh, Shakespeare is able to uh, penetrate to some of the genuine dilemmas that existed within Roman civilization and a lot of ancient civilizations uh, surrounding gift giving and reception of gifts and the obligations that we have when we receive gifts. And the dilemma that he presents is a, a dilemma that uh, really puts, um, uh, as, as dilemmas have, they have two, two bad sides to them. That's the nature of a dilemma. Uh, on the one hand, uh, you have the danger of monstrous ingratitude, which is reflected in the ingratitude of the people toward Coriolanus, and also the ingratitude of Coriolanus toward the people. Both of them become monstrous because they're ungrateful to one another. On the other hand, you do have illustrated in the play uh, the dangers and the dark side of gratitude. When Coriolanus finally accepts the obligations that he has toward his city, and toward his mother in particular, when he accepts that he has received gifts and so he's obligated to return service for those gifts. That's what gets him killed. So you're, you're stuck between monstrous ingratitude on the one hand and a kind of cannibalistic gratitude and all-consuming demand that is coming from the city of Rome to Coriolanus. That's, that's the dilemma that Coriolanus lays out. Uh, we, none of us have ever been in the situation that Coriolanus was in, where the city depended on us, uh, where we were banished. I trust nobody has been banished from, uh, banished from any city. Uh, none of you have had that kind of burden. But I think the dilemma that Coriolanus lays out is one that we're familiar with. We're familiar with it in, in family life, I think. Uh, surely, even if you don't have a parent or parents who pull the gratitude card in order to manipulate you into doing things that you'd rather not do. You may not have a parent who does that, but you probably know somebody who has a parent who does that, or you can imagine a parent doing that, perhaps, perhaps in a weak moment. You yourself have manipulated your own kids by playing the gratitude card. After all that I've done for you, and this is the thanks you show me. This is how you treat me after I gave you life, you know, Mom says, I carried you for nine months, and this is the gratitude you show me. Dad says, I've supported you for 18 years. Why are you lying around playing video games? This is the kind of gratitude you show me. 
Now, the content of those rebukes may be, may be legitimate. You may need to correct your children in those ways. But it's very easy for us to use our gifts to other people to try to dominate them and try to be domineering over them, to, be, to lord it over them as benefactors, to use the language of Jesus. Uh, that's not just something that's confined to ancient Rome. It's not something that's confined to the high politics of the story of Coriolanus. It's something that we experience uh, in day-to-day life. Or think about what it would be like to be drafted into a war that you were convinced was unjust. And the demand is, you have received all the benefits of living in this country. You have all these freedoms and blessings of living in this country. How dare you refuse the call to service when it comes? Do we have the courage or the freedom to stand up and say, yes, I'm grateful for all the blessing, and yet, do we have any grounds for saying that? I'm grateful for all the blessings I've received as a citizen of this country, and yet, I cannot serve this country in this way. Nations place gratitude burdens on people. Nations make citizens gratitude slaves. So how do we get out of this dilemma? We don't want to be ungrateful. God requires us to be grateful. As I said last night, Paul says, be thankful for all things in all circumstances. Uh, We're not allowed to be ungrateful. And yet we're also resistant to the idea that our gratitude enslaves us so that we just simply have to do whatever our benefactors tell us to do. Can we give and receive in freedom? Can we give and receive in a way that uh, is uh, free of this dilemma that Coriolanus lays out? I think the gospel frees us from this dilemma. Jesus comes in order to deliver us from our sins, but Paul also talks about Jesus delivering us from principalities and powers. Uh, Those are demonic forces. There are real demonic uh, powers that uh, try to enslave us, and Jesus comes to defeat those. But I think those principalities and powers are not just demonic personages, demonic demonic, uh, 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 bad angels, fallen angels, and Satan. But those principalities and power involve social, political, cultural habits and structures that enslave us. And Jesus comes to deliver us from those principalities and powers as well as from our own sin and from the dominance of Satan. Well, how does he do that? How does Jesus liberate us from gratitude slavery without making us ingrates? One of the ways he does it, the central way he does it in his ministry, I would say, is by acting in ways that by ancient standards would have seemed ungrateful. Jesus seems to his contemporaries to be an ingrate. And he teaches his disciples, so it seems, to be ingrates. Jesus does not admire and accept the tradition of the elders. How can he do that? The Jews have this long tradition of reflection on Scripture, teaching about Scripture. The rabbis have studied Scripture, and this is the tradition that guides the Jews. And Jesus calls it, uh, describes it as demonic in some cases. They are of their father, the devil. He says that they use their traditions to displace the Word of God 
Jesus doesn't simply accept the tradition of the elders. Jesus resists it. You'd think if he were grateful, he would say, I'm, you know, I'm just going to accept this. This is my heritage. I'm going to do what the elders have said. No, Jesus seems to be acting like an ingrate. Think of how he instructs his disciples. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus says, you must hate your father and your mother. You cannot follow me, he says. You cannot be my disciple unless you're ready to hate your father and your mother. Count your father and mother as enemies for my sake. Hatred is typically not primarily an emotional state in the Bible. But hatred has to do with how you count somebody, how you regard somebody. You regard somebody as an enemy, as an obstacle. And Jesus says we have to be willing to count our own parents as obstacles and hate them and resist them in order to follow him. There's not necessarily a conflict, of course. Our parents may be godly parents who encourage us to follow Jesus. But if they become obstacles, then we have to resist them. Even though your mom really did carry you for nine months, and even though your dad really did give up all this time in order to support you for all those years, still Jesus calls us to hate our father and mother in circumstances where they become obstacles to... um, to our discipleship. A man comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you, but let me bury my dead father first. You know, what our immediate instinct is, of course, take your time, mourn, do what's necessary. You're obligated to your father. This is an obligation, among other things, an obligation of gratitude that you have toward your father. That's not what Jesus says. You know what Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. This is shocking. This would be shocking to hear. Is it shocking to us? It should be. It's shocking, especially to Jews in first century, uh, first century Israel, because obligation toward parents were one of the most uh, central, the most uh, all-encompassing, demanding obligations that any ancient person had. Honor your father and mother. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, no, let the dead bury their dead. Don't take time to go bury your dead father. Follow me now. Family obligations are trumped by what Jesus says. Jesus mocks and attacks the Pharisaical giving and receiving that he sees around him. The Pharisees and scribes, the Jews, had become kind of a mirror of the Greco-Roman system. They did things in order to, they gave benefits in order to receive benefits. They gave benefits in order to exercise power. They did things in order to receive, as Jesus says, to receive honor from men. And Jesus constantly attacks that. He attacks the whole system that the Jews have adopted, uh, that uh, they've adopted from, uh, perhaps from uh, Roman society, perhaps just from corruption of uh, the human heart. They've adopted the system of giving and gratitude that, uh, that I described last evening. The Jews have adopted that, and Jesus constantly attacks it. Jesus appears to be an ingrate, and he lives free of gratitude slavery. He doesn't take the tradition of the elders as something he must subject himself to. He tells his disciples that they mustn't take the obligations that they have to their parents as absolute obligations. Jesus is the one who imposes an absolute obligation. 
Well, Jesus is not being ungrateful, although he might appear to be, and I think he did appear to be to his contemporaries. But what is he doing? I think negatively what he's doing is attacking the ways that giving and receiving have been bound up in Judaism, as in much of the ancient world, have become bound up with an honor system, have been bound up with the desire to gain respect among your fellows and your peers. That's what ancient benefactors did. They gave things away in order to obligate people to them so that they call in favors later. Giving was a way of exercising power, as I described last evening. Giving is also a way to raise your stature in the view of your fellows. This is one of the findings of the book I mentioned last evening during the Q&A of The Gift. Uh, it's by Barcel Mose, a, a French cultural anthropologist, who describes uh, uh, Pacific Northwest practices of giving and receiving, and particularly describes what's called the potlatch. Potlatch, Idaho. The potlatch was a was an uh, was a uh, annual event of excessive gift giving, where chiefs would compete with each other to see who could give more away. Part of it is to show how wealthy they are. I'm so wealthy I can light a hundred dollar bill to to light my cigarette, to light my cigar, okay? to light my three hundred dollar cigar. That's how wealthy I get. I could just burn money. And during the potlatch ceremony, sometimes the chiefs would throw treasures into the lake just to demonstrate how wealthy they were. They can just give it all up. And they'd, they'd give away huge amounts of wealth to their, uh, the chiefs would, to the, to the members of the tribe. They're competing to show their generosity. And the more generous they are, the higher their stature is within these tribal societies. Jesus rejects all that in fundamental ways. Jesus rejects the practice of giving in order to dominate others. He rejects the practice of giving in order to be seen by others. He rejects the practice of giving excessively in order to raise your stature uh, in the eyes of others. One of the places where he addresses this is in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning verse 24. There arose a dispute among them as to which of them was, regard, was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. We sometimes read that and think that benefactor is kind of an ironic description. Yeah, these guys are... These guys are lording it over, and they, they like to call themselves benefactors. But I think Jesus is describing what is actually going on in the world around him. Those who lord it over people do it by doing benefits, by doing favors to other people, and therefore winning their loyalty and winning their respect and gaining stature. Don't do that, Jesus says. It shall not be so with you, but let him who is greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. And you are those who have stood by me in my trials, just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus says, don't be like these benefactors. Don't give in order to gain loyalty. Don't give in order to receive something back. 
Don't give in order to puff yourself up. In fact, Jesus seems to be very radical in what he says about giving. Give without any thought of return. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, or don't let your left hand know what your right hand is. One or the other, I can't remember which way it goes. Don't let one hand know what the other one is doing. Give without any expectation of return. He breaks the connection that exists in the Roman world. He breaks the connection that had begun to exist in the Jewish world between giving and honor, between giving and building up your stature, between giving and a kind of pride and domination. This is reflected, I think, very clearly in the way Jesus talks about hospitality. We don't think hospitality as an exercise of power. But it often is, even now, and it certainly was in the ancient world. If you wanted to gain power in the ancient world, one of the ways you did it was by showing hospitality to people whom you wanted to influence, showing hospitality to people whom you wanted to get close to. You invite them to your dinner party so that you secure an invitation to a future dinner party that they may hold. And then the seating arrangement, right? Who's sitting where at the table is exceedingly important. You want to be as close to the host, the very powerful, influential host. You want to be as close to him as possible so that, you know, when everybody else down the end of the table is discussing among themselves, you can, you can get his ear and you can plant some ideas and try to cultivate a relationship that's going to benefit you at some time in the future. Uh, in Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal at the Pharisee's home, and he sees this precise kind of thing going on. He sees the Jews jockeying for places at the table. He sees the way that the Pharisees have constructed their guest list. And he says, don't do that. Don't act that way. Don't use hospitality as a way of puffing up your status. Don't use hospitality, your gifts of hospitality, as a way of obligating other people. Jesus told a parable to the invited guests. This is Matthew 4, uh, Luke 14, verse 7. He began to speak a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both shall come and say to you, Give place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has been invited, who has been invited, who has invited you comes, he may say to you, "Friend, move up higher." Then you will have honor in the sight of all those who are at the table. It can sound like Jesus is saying, "Well, if you really want to gain respect, I'll tell you how to gain respect. You don't do it by trying to get the highest place at the table. If you really want to gain respect, you pretend to be humble. You take the lowest place at the beginning because then you can go nowhere but up." Jesus is getting giving advice about how to game the system even more effectively, to play the honor, system, the honor game even more effectively. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I think he's explaining that if you accept the terms that they're using, that you want, to be, uh, you want other people to see how honored you are by the host, if you accept that as the intent of the, of the event, then even on those premises, the best thing to do is start at the lowest rung, not seize the highest rung, not compete for the highest. Even if you accept the terms of the honor game, you should start low rather than high. 
what Jesus is actually doing, I think, is saying, uh, as he says in uh, the Luke 22 passage, be like me. I came as your servant. I didn't seek the highest place. I sought the lowest place and trusted my father to raise me up. Verse 11, I think, just demolishes the whole system. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he looks at the people who are at the dinner, and he realizes that the people at the dinner are there because they, have, they can bring some advantage to the host. He goes on. This is still Luke 14, verse 12. He also went on to say to the one who, uh, who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers, your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You'll be blessed, since they don't have the means to repay you. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The guest list shouldn't be constructed, your hospitality shouldn't be constructed to gain advantage. The guest list shouldn't be constructed so that you gain honor. You don't give in order to receive that kind of benefit back. So Jesus looks like an ingrate, but what Jesus is actually doing is distinguishing and separating giving and receiving from the honor system that had gripped the ancient Jews and that was common in the Roman world around him. He's trying to detach those two things. He looks like an ingrate, but what he's actually doing is trying to give, get to a, a purified giving and receiving. Positively, what does Jesus teach us about giving and receiving, about giving and thanksgiving? It looks like Jesus is saying, you need to be absolute, altruist, uh, absolute altruists in your giving. Give without any thought of return. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, or right hand know what your left hand. Don't let either hand know what the other hand is doing. That's the point. Give without thought of return. Invite people to your dinners who can't invite you back. Find people who don't have the possibility of return hospitality. It seems like he's advocating a kind of pure gift in the sense that I mentioned it last evening. I was talking about Jacques Derrida, the founder of or the inventor of deconstruction, who says that any kind of return on a gift, even a return of a thank you, spoils the gift. It makes it an impure gift. If you give a gift to somebody and you expect that person to like the gift and you get a little glow inside because you see that person liking the gift that you gave them, that corrupts the gifts. That, that's no longer a true gift, according to Derrida. Because you may be giving the gift in order to have that glowing feeling that you did some benefit for someone, to have the self-satisfaction that you did a good turn. It sounds like that's what Jesus is saying. But almost invariably, when Jesus says, give without thought of return, invite those who can't invite you back, the next thing he says is to expect a reward. Give without thinking of return because you'll receive a greater reward. The issue is not a return on your gift. Jesus is not saying don't expect a return. He's redirecting his disciples so that they're not expecting a return from the person that they give to, but they're expecting a return from their Heavenly Father. Okay. Jesus does this constantly. He already did it. I kind of glossed over it just to delay the impact of the of what Jesus says. 
uh, back in Luke 22. I think that's where it was. No, it was in Luke 14. In Luke 14, when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. You'll be blessed because you have a feeling of having done something for somebody who can't do something back. No, you'll be blessed because you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That's Luke 14, 14. People who give dinner parties and show hospitality in order to get an invitation back from the people that they welcome to their table are aiming too low, Jesus is saying. You should want a better reward, not the measly reward that somebody can give you a return a return invitation. You should do it in order to be rewarded by your Heavenly Father, the source of all blessings, all gifts, all good and perfect gifts come from above, from the Father of lights. All gifts come from Him. And all return gifts come from Him. You should give not with your sights set on a response from the person. You should give with your sights set on your, father, your Father's return, which may not come as Jesus says, until the resurrection of the righteous. To give a gift in this sense is to act in faith. You give a gift and you may never see the return until the resurrection of the righteous. But there will be a return. There will be a reward. But the reward doesn't come from the person necessarily. The reward comes from your heavenly Father. Jesus says this again in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. When you give alms... Don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. That sounds like hyperbole, but you can find passages in Seneca that virtually say this. If you receive a gift from a patron, if you're a client and receive a gift from your patron, then you should sound a trumpet and gather everybody and tell them what he did for you. I don't think Jesus is exaggerating or not exaggerating very much when he warns people not to do that kind of thing, because that's exactly the kind of instruction that they were getting from people like Seneca. Don't do that. Don't sound a trumpet in the streets that you may be, that they, you may be honored by men. That's the issue. Where are you seeking your honor? Who do you want to glorify you? They have their reward, he says. If you blow a trumpet when you give alms, call everyone's attention, you get a reward. You get the reward that you're looking for. People think, wow, what a generous person. Look at him giving these alms. Look at him showing this hospitality. Jesus says you're aiming too low. When you give alms, do not let your left hand, there it is, left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's left and then right. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your alms may be in secret. It's not the end of the verse, you know. Your father, who sees in secret, will repay you. Don't look to reward from the a recipient of your alms. Don't look to reward from the a crowd who's watching you give alms, but do seek a reward, expect a reward. Trust that your heavenly Father will give you a reward. Luke chapter six, in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says something similar. Luke six, beginning of verse 27. I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who mistreat you. 
Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him. Give to everyone who asks, and whoever takes away from what is it takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. He's describing the reciprocity of ancient giving and receiving, giving and repayment. Sinners do that. If you lend to those who, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But why love your enemies? Just out of pure altruistic motives, we should renounce the desire for reward. No, that's not what Jesus says. Love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return from those to whom you lend, and your reward will be great. That's Luke 6.35, that particular verse. So Jesus positively, negatively, he's detaching the giving and receiving from this honor system. You don't give in order to put people in your debt. You don't give in order to enslave people permanently. You give without thought of return because the Father rewards you. You give without thought of return in the immediate future because you know that in the long-term future, maybe not until the final judgment, you will receive your reward. Just have to wait for it. But it'll be greater than anything you can get back from the person that you're giving to. Set your sights higher. Look for reward from the Father. What Jesus is doing is making the Father a party to every single gift exchange. The ancient world had these gift exchanges that were kind of tiny circles that could become vicious circles. I give to you, you have to give back to me. If I'm wealthy and you're not, I can give a whole lot more than you can give me, and so I can keep you in my debt permanently. I can do you a lot more favors than you can do back. You'll never get out of debt to me. This is a small circle and a vicious circle. Jesus expands the circle so that it's an infinite circle. And it's not just two parties, the giver and the recipient. There are three parties in every transaction for the believer. You give You don't just look at the person that you're giving to. You look for return from your Heavenly Father. You receive, and you think of the Father as the one who's going to return uh, the giver for his hospitality and his generosity. This teaching liberates people to give and to receive. It liberates givers. If you are expecting a return from somebody for every gift that you give, If you expect some kind of commensurate return, a return that's somehow equivalent to what you gave, then you're going to be kind of, uh, you're not going to give much. You're going to cheap. You don't want to give to ungrateful people. If If I expend myself for this person, they're just going to ignore it. They're never going to pay anything back. They're never going to even acknowledge all the benefits I've done for them. Why give? How can you give to ungrateful people? It frees givers to give to ungrateful and evil people because you're not looking for your reward from that person. It doesn't matter whether they're ungrateful because your father sees in secret and your father rewards you. 
it frees recipients. Because a recipient of a gift knows that the gift is ultimately coming, not from the person who gives it, but it's coming from the Heavenly Father. That gift is ultimately coming from God, and the thanks is ultimately due to the Father. Paul even goes so far as to expect a return gift from somebody, to somebody who has benefited him. He expects a return gift to be covered by his Heavenly Father. This is in Philippians. Philippians is a really interesting case study of giving and receiving because it's basically a letter, a fundraising letter, a thank you letter to a church that has supported Paul in his ministry. Uh, probably not the framing of a fundraising letter that you'd want to, that you want to have, but this is what, what Paul does. How does Paul, do, how does Paul respond to this benefit that he's received from the Philippians? What's, in, what's interesting in, uh, in the light of what I've been talking about is that he doesn't say any of the things you expect a recipient of a gift to say in the ancient world. He doesn't say, I am eternally de- indebted to you. I can't ever repay to you, uh, repay you. You've done me a favor that I cannot return. He doesn't say any of the, the lines that Seneca proposes in his treatise on the benefits. He begins with thanks. Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all my remembering of you, my remembrance of you always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So the Philippians are reading this or hearing this, and they're thinking, um, we gave him support, but he's not thanking us. He's thanking God as he remembers us. What's up with that? That's not appropriate thanks. Why doesn't he thank us? Paul doesn't ever exactly say thank you to the Philippians. He thanks God for them, as he thanks God for all of the churches that he writes to. He thanks God for benefits that he doesn't receive. He thanks God for things that don't directly benefit him. He thanks God for the, what's happening in the churches. He thanks God for the faith of the churches. Those might benefit him in some indirect way, but he's thanking God for all kinds of things that don't benefit him personally. So he begins by thanking God instead of thanking the Philippians. That would, might turn some heads. And then he ends the letter. You think, you know, finally at the end of the letter, he's going to acknowledge that we gave him something and he's going to say thanks. And he's going to say, what can I do in return? How can I, how can I repay you? As he properly should. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 15. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. And even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. For I received anything in full and have abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Uh, I want to get to the next verse, but just to stop there. What, how does Paul think of the gift that the Philippians sent to him? He's acknowledging that it happened. He's acknowledging that they alone, the Philippian church alone, has supported him. When he thinks of their gift, though, he thinks of it not so much as a gift to him as a sacrifice to God. Their gift to Paul 
is a, is a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. They are giving to God by giving to Paul, by giving to the church. And then how does Paul respond? How does Paul expect a repayment to be made? Not by saying, I'm indebted, but he says, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God's got me covered. <laughs> my Father's going to repay you. I don't even, I'm not even going to acknowledge that I should repay you. I can't. But my Father will. The Father has become a party. The Father is actually the a target, if you will, of the Philippians' gift in Paul's mind. They're giving a gift to Paul, but they're actually sacrificing it to God. And Paul expects the return gift to be covered by the Father. The Father's covering both sides. He's the source of the original gift. He's the Alpha. He's the source of the return gift that Paul himself doesn't promise to give and can't give. He's the Omega. The Father surrounds and encircles the entire process of giving and receiving. It frees the Philippians to give without thought of return. It frees Paul to receive without being enslaved because the, the Father is a party to all gifts. The gospel forms a particular kind of community. As I said last evening, uh, giving and receiving, giving and gratitude were the glue that held Roman society together. And giving and gratitude in, uh, had, uh, in the ways that the Romans did it had infected first century Judaism. It's the way that Judaism hung together. But that's not the way the church hangs together. It's not the same. It's not that there aren't gifts given and received. It's not that there isn't thanks. In fact, there's thanks for everything all the time. Jesus looks like an ingrate, but what actually he's doing is he's giving thanks for everything in all circumstances. His whole life is a life of grateful devotion to his Father. And all his responses to the people around him, whatever benefits they do him, is subordinated to that, to the fact that he's offering his thanks, his whole life in thanks to his Father. Gratitude is universal. There are gifts and reception going on all the time in the church. But it doesn't function the way an ancient society functioned. Oh, no, no, no thing, oh, nothing to anyone, Paul says. Oh, nothing to anyone but the debt of love. There are no debts in the church, Paul's saying. It's a debt-free zone. Somebody does you a benefit, somebody helps you move. That's not a debt. Paul says, you know, owe no debt but love. You're not bound to them. The Father will reward them. That gift ultimately comes from the Father. You don't have these relationships of slavery, of gratitude slavery within the church because there is one patron, the Spirit. You also don't have this system like you had in the Roman world where the very wealthy, the patrons, could enslave the poorer and the very poor, their clients, because they had vast resources and their clients had none. It was, uh, it was a two-way kind of thing, but the, it was asymmetrical. The patron had vastly more resources and could give a lot more and enslave the client in ways that the client couldn't possibly respond to. The, the, the emperor is the great patron of the Roman Empire. He's the source of all good and perfect gifts in the Roman world. And nobody can put, him in, put the emperor in his debt. Nobody's capable of doing that. 
because the emperor basically owns everything. It's an asymmetrical system where there's giving and receiving going in both directions. There's giving and reception, but uh, there's the dominance of one party over the other. It's not the way the church works. The church is a debt-free zone, and it's a zone where every single member has received gifts by the Spirit, gifts that are to be used to benefit the entire body. That's part of thanks, proper gratitude for the reception of the gift, is to use the gift to benefit others. We'll see that in the next hour, that uh, part, of, uh, part of what it means biblically to show gratitude is to use the gifts to uh, benefit and to support and to nourish others. Everybody in the church is party to this. Everyone in the church is gifted. And everyone in the church benefits from all the gifts of everyone. Maybe not directly, but indirectly as the body is built up. The Roman system was a, uh, had a fixed hierarchy with the wealthy patrons at the top, clients uh, lower down, plebes, slaves at the lowest, who were only recipients of benefits, who couldn't make any return benefits. There's no fixed hierarchy in the church like that. Everyone has a gift. If you're looking at who's got the gift of teaching, maybe it's the pastor has the gift of teaching, and in a sense he's giving and the rest of the congregation is receiving. But in hundreds and hundreds of ways, the pastor is receiving gifts from the members of the church and being built up by the members of the church. It's this kind of oscillating pattern rather than a fixed hierarchy with the wealthy at the top and the, the less wealthy at the bottom. There's no fixed hierarchy in the church. It's a debt-free zone. It's a, it's a community of mutual giving and receiving, of mutual construction that is all underwritten by the gifts that come from the Father because the Father is a party to every single gift exchange that exists in the church. That's the kind of community that Paul envisions in the church. That's the kind of community where people are free to give, free to receive without being enslaved, free to give even to those who are not very grateful and won't respond, freed up by the gospel, by the knowledge that the Father is the true and absolute patron, that he's a party to every transaction. That knowledge frees people to give and receive gladly and cheerfully. 15-minute break, uh, we'll start up again at 10 till.